Welcome to Bible study. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And we're going to take a few moments and pray and ask God's blessing on our time and then see what He has to say to us tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just your hand on our lives. We thank you that uh, you are involved and you care about our daily lives, about where we go, what we do, what's happening in our lives. And I thank you for that level of care. Even beyond that, you know how many hairs we have on our head and you know everything about us. And so I just thank you tonight that you've taken that kind of an interest in us. I thank you for that kind of a love over our lives. I pray, God, that tonight as we welcome you here, and we do, we welcome you here, that tonight you would speak to us, speak to us as individuals, speak to us in our situations, speak to us, God, wherever we're at. I thank you that you have an interest in our growth, you have an interest in our healing, you have an interest, God, in us being closer to you. And so I pray, Father, to that end and to those ends, that God, you'd speak, we'd have ears to hear. I pray that we would be able to receive your word tonight and be able to receive what you have for us. And so, God, I pray for change tonight. I ask you that there would be things in us that would be changed. There would be ideas that would be changed. There would be perspectives that would be changed. That, God, there would be healing. There would be wholeness. I pray, God, that you do a work. And uh, we submit ourselves to you and to the process that you have us in. And we say, God, have your way. We ask your blessing on this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If... You have your Bibles. Let's open up to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S P E A K P I P E dot com slash. Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that web page, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Nehemiah chapter 2. I need a volunteer to read verse 20 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2 and 20. Thank you. 
All right, well, thanks for that. All right, so here you have, and we're still in the same time frame that we were last week. We were looking in uh, Ezra last week, and as we were looking at that, I was just explaining some things about how uh, God had just supernaturally paved the way for Ezra and for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and to respectively begin the rebuilding process after the Babylonians had taken them captive 70 years or so before. They had completely destroyed the city, burned the city. They had destroyed the walls of the city. They had destroyed the temple in the city. Uh, so all these things had happened, and, and during their time, and there's, uh, like you read the book of Daniel, you can see uh, what was going on in Babylon during that time, and you can see how God was faithful to his witness. Or you read the book of Esther, and you can see some of that. And how God was just really faithful to show himself to the kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of that. And and God used Daniel, and God used Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And uh, there were those that, that God used. God used Esther and uh and you see how, over time, there was an influence that took place within that kingdom. And it was one of the greatest kingdoms on the face of the earth, one of the largest kingdoms on the face of the earth at that time. And uh, if you ever, and I've brought this up before, but you ever saw the movie uh, 300? And it was them, and they were invading Greece. And, and how large, you remember, I don't know if you remember this, but the king was like this humongous Xerxes. He was a giant, and he was portrayed as a giant in the movie. But uh, more importantly, he wasn't a giant. Uh, it was it was just the way he was portrayed. But that's really how people saw him. That's how they saw this empire. And this empire had just uh, resources without end, and it was vast, and it just it was spread throughout the whole earth, and. And some of the known earth, and some of uh, the uh, learning that took place there, some of the inventions, some of the things that were figured out during that time were just amazing. And so you just see that. And, and you see that this was is really just a, a, a tremendous empire, a tremendous uh, thing that, that, that had taken the Jews captive. It was like a machine and the destruction that they brought to them. And so over time... Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, Ezra, uh, a priest. And over time, they, they became people of influence. Uh, the cupbearer had a lot of influence in the kingdom. Uh, he was the guy that was closest to the king, and the king trusted him with his life. And the cupbearer would try the food, try the drink. He had, he had other responsibilities. He, he was somebody that was a person of influence. He was somebody that was looked to. And so when... He was downtrodden, and the king saw that. He knew him well enough to see his face was downcast, and he asked him, what's wrong? And he was able to tell him, he's like, well, the city where my people came from is just in ruins. The walls are in ruins and all of these things. And, and he's like, it just makes me sad. And the king's like, all right, well, let me hook you up then. And uh, and he asked him, he's like, well, you know, can I go? How long? Whatever. And the king sent him out with materials and money and papers that say this guy has the authority to do this and sent him and entrusted him to go and govern the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now you think about the switch that had to happen over those years for them, the same kingdom 
that had destroyed the city and destroyed the temple and taken everything out of it, all of a sudden everything turned around in that generation to the point that the king loaded them down with money, loaded them down with, the, and I'm talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they had two different trips and they went two different times with the same time frame. How they just loaded them down, they, they returned the stuff that was supposed to go to the temple. You got Nehemiah coming back with materials, money, authority to govern the project. All of these things happened and everything was turned around from the time when they were taken captive. Everything. And so, Nehemiah showed back up again in Jerusalem. He came back uh, from Babylon, showed up in Jerusalem, and immediately as he began to rebuild the walls, he faced opposition. People didn't like it. And what had happened was that there were Samaritans and, and people that came, and they weren't real Samaritans, like in the sense that the Samaritans, you think about the Samaritans as being, okay, well, that's where Israel had their capital. Well, that's true, but after the captivity, Others showed up in Samaria, and they were Arabic. They were Arabs, and so they became the new Samaritans. They became a part of who the Samaritans were, and so they didn't really have any vested interest in Israel or Judah or anything like that. And so they came, and they just started complaining because they didn't want to see the, the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want to see these people coming back. They'd kind of taken over their cheese. When they were gone, and they realized that when the, the city was rebuilt and when the temple was rebuilt, that these people were all going to come back. And they were no longer going to be in control. They were no longer going to be in charge. They were no longer going to have free run of the place. They were no longer going to be able to use the resources that were still there. No longer were they going to be the people that they were at that moment. And so they opposed the walls being rebuilt. And so they came to Nehemiah when he started the rebuilding process and they told him, say, well, you can't do this. And this was his response. It's what we read tonight. That's what he's telling them. He, he said, well, this is my response. Now, understand that in the language that is written, and this is very emphatic, what he says to them. This isn't just, like, conversational. Like, they say, well, you, know, you can't rebuild the walls. And it wasn't Nehemiah saying, well, I think we can. It wasn't like that. Nehemiah just looked at him. He responded to them. But he responded emphatically to them. And he, and he just told them, he's like, yeah, we, we are going to rebuild the walls. And you have no authority here. You have no right here. And you have no share with us in any of this. You, you can't even be a part of this. You have no basis to even say anything to me or to any of us. And that's the way he answered them. And I mean, it was a strong answer. It wasn't just like, yeah, yeah, I think we do. It wasn't a... It wasn't like he answered in a difference of opinion. There was clearly a difference of opinion, but he stated the fact as he saw it. And that was it. And so that's what you hear in these verses. And so, what Nehemiah is doing, there's two things he does here. One, he's answering these people that are coming against him. He's answering the opposition. And I want you to hear how he answers the opposition. He speaks with authority to the opposition. That's how you answer the opposition. He didn't try to reason with them. He didn't try to 
to appease them in any way. He wasn't trying to somehow win them over to be friendly to them or anything. He recognized them for who they were. They were Arabs, and they were uh, opposing him, and they were opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They were opposing the rebuilding of the temple, and they were going to do everything they could do in order to stop it. And he recognized that. And so, instead of trying to appease them, instead of trying to be nice and all the rest of that stuff, he just spoke clearly, clearly to them, and he told them what for. Now, I want you to let God change your heart and mind about some of this, if he needs to. You might say, well, Jesus said we're supposed to be peacemakers. Okay. How many times do you ever hear Jesus coddle a demon? No, I want you to think about that for a second. When did Jesus ever try to make peace with a demon? When? He didn't. You see, the issue was that he recognized that these unclean spirits, these demonic spirits, and if you read the Gospels, what you see is that he commanded them. He cast them out. He rebuked them. He told them to leave. He told them that, you know, he got rid of them. It's what he did. You don't hear him making too much peace with the Pharisees either. And you can read through that all you want, but, I mean, they would come to him and they'd try to, they'd, they'd try to trap him, they'd try to fool him, they'd try to do all these things to make him look bad. They were actively opposing him and his ministry. He didn't really have a lot of, like, nice things to say. When he entered the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and those that were buying and selling in the temple. He didn't have a lot of nice niceties to say to those people because he understood that they were the enemy all right, to what he was preaching and teaching and that a strong hand was necessary in order to get rid of them. Now, is it possible some of those people repented of what they did and came into some kind of salvation with Jesus? Sure there is. We know some of the Pharisees did. You know, Nicodemus was part of the council. He was part of that the, the whole ruling class and the whole ruling council. Nicodemus came to him at night to find out about what it meant and what was going on and what Jesus had to say. And it wasn't a result of Jesus wooing Nicodemus over. I mean, Jesus was very clear what he thought of them and what he thought of the, the way that they treated people and the way, the way that they were um, portraying relationship with God and what that really means. He was very clear with them that he didn't agree with that and that they were wrong. But you see people responding in different ways. You had some people hardening their positions, but you also had people that were willing to say, Jesus, okay, well, what's it about? All right. You got the whole John chapter 3. You must be born again. Got a whole John three sixteen. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son who didn't believe him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. That's Nicodemus. Alright? So uh, I want to be clear on this that, and I can say this with surety, when it comes to our spiritual enemies, there's no place and there's no reason for us to try and make peace. Because there is no peace. They are out to destroy us. And that's all there is to it. I actually knew a guy that was praying that the devil would get saved. Yeah. 
which is, to me, is just utter foolishness. We already know the end of the story. We have the end of the story about him, and we have the end of the story prophetically about what's going to happen to him and all the rest of that stuff. Praying for something that we already know the will of God on and what's happening, I think it's just foolishness. And so, you know, whatever he thought or whatever he was doing, he was pastor of church. I mean, I well-respected teachers that I knew for a lot of years, but we disagreed on that point. There was a, there was a heavy disagreement on that point. We agreed probably on 98% of stuff that he taught on, except for that. So, and that was it. I mean, whatever, we're still friends, we're still hanging out, we're still whatever it was going to be, but that was the case. And so, as far as I'm concerned, and from what I see modeled to us in the scriptures, certain things just need to happen as a command. Certain things just need to happen emphatically. So when we're praying for people, and we're praying deliverance over people, that needs to be an emphatic effort. You know, we're not we're not begging spirits to leave. We're telling them to. And there should be in us a certain authority that rises up, that comes from Jesus, that allows us or inspires us to do that. But we need to have that kind of a a, a reference in our heart, a kind of reference in our mind that this is what's expected. Now, what do I mean by casting out demons? I mean, some of you have been to Africa with us. If you go to Africa, all right, it's it's really obvious. It happens sometimes. And uh, I don't remember who was with us. We were at a we were at a church right before in Ziegenshore, right before we were ready to take the boat, I think, back to. The car. Who was on that trip? Uh, it was uh, Kayla and I in church here. Tim was uh, student over the training center. Okay, so you were training there, and then you and Kaylin were the uh, were the interns. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we get to this church. Whatever. So we're praying over people at the end, and there's a girl. Uh, I forget what happened was, I think the pastor's wife or somebody said, hey, could you pray for this girl? She's got, uh, there was a a spirit that was plaguing young women and girls at that time, uh, to the point that in the public school system, these, these young women, these girls, they just pass out in the middle of the day. And it wasn't just one or two, it was like they just would just pass out. And they were really super concerned about it because there was nothing they could do about it. And so it could be at recess, it could be at lunch, it could be during English class, it could be during French class, math class, whenever it was, it just passed out. Standing up, sitting down, didn't matter. And there was a specific name they used for it, which I don't remember. Marmon? I don't remember. Forgive me, Tom and Lori, listening in Senegal right now. Just forgive me. But it was a spirit. And so uh, they asked me to pray for us. Somebody asked me to pray for us. So we just started praying for her. All of a sudden, there's a manifestation of the demonic in this girl's life. And she was kind of scrawny. But man, was she strong. And the demon was strong. Something happened. And we just started rebuking that thing, speaking to that thing, 
And this went on for probably, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour? Easy? Now, we had to catch a boat because we were leaving. And and so we were on a time schedule, but we, would, we didn't want to leave her half done, you know? <laughs> and so we're still we're still you know praying deliverance over and the pastor's wife is setting up the table and getting lunch out at the same time. She kinda excused herself, she's like, Let me go get lunch ready for you guys so we can feed you before you go. And so they were getting busy getting lunch ready and everything. We were finishing up, probably four or five minutes to an hour. And and so, you know, we got done, things were done, she's free, everything's good. And we ate our lunch, and they whisked us off to the boat, and we got on it, and we left. That was it. Now, that was kind of dramatic. You know, that was a dramatic one. They're not all that dramatic. Now, cool thing, that girl ended up being free, and and really started serving Jesus, and is married now. And it's all good. You know, and this is years later. She's all good. And so that's the kind of story that I'm talking about is people actually just being set free. And it doesn't just happen in Africa. We've prayed over people and just about everywhere we went for deliverance. I mean, we've had some pretty dramatic deliverances up here upstairs. And God just moving and, and doing things and, and setting people free. And it's something that just happens sometimes. I don't go looking for it. I don't need to look for it. It finds me. And so if it comes up, they want to come up and do that, that's fine. But each of us has the authority to deal with that. Sometimes when people are prayed over for deliverance, they're healed. You'd be shocked the number of times in the New Testament, because we've actually gone through the New Testament and documented this, how many times in the New Testament people are healed and it's because Jesus rebuked the Spirit in them. Lots. More than you think. More than you think the number of times that Jesus either cast a demon out or rebuked a, a, a spirit of infirmity or, or a familiar spirit or a demonic spirit in somebody. And then once he did that, they were healed. You'd be shocked how many times that happens. Because it, it's common. It's more common than the way we pray over people. Because we pray over people a certain way. There's a Christian way to pray over people. And so we get ourselves into that mode and we pray over them in our Christian way. And, and that's it. But we don't see nearly as many healings as Jesus did. And we don't see nearly as many healings as the early church did either. But see, they were still following the model of Jesus for they kind of sanitized how you do things. Because I mean, even just me talking about some some people here are uncomfortable with that. That's okay. Be uncomfortable. It, it's all right. But I, I'm not somebody that I'm just going to ignore the fact that this is how it happened in the New Testament. That kind of primitive understanding of this is how Jesus does things. All right, I'll do it too. Well, what if people don't understand? I don't care. All right? The person who doesn't understand if they need healing, they can come to me. We'll pray for them. And maybe they'll be healed. All right? Someday. Who knows? They'll just remember that weird guy or whatever was happening. When I used to travel on the road, there'd be times that we'd see people like, there'd be physical manifestations or whatever. I've told this story a bunch of times, but 
uh, it's worth repeating. I, there, there was a church I was in somewhere, God only knows, and I was they had we had like this end time thing where people come up for prayer, and there was this old person that came up for prayer, like an old person, like frail, okay, sort of frail person came up for prayer, and as I was praying for him, I felt like the Holy Spirit led me, and I hauled off and I just punched him right in the gut. And this old person just doubled over and then just kind of fell over. Pastor freaked. And I didn't blame him either. I'd have freaked too. You see something like that, you're going to freak out, right? Kind of freaked. And, and whatever. Got done with that and he escorted me, you know, whatever. And... I, it's the truth, though. I mean, that's what happened. And I don't blame him one bit, but that's the truth of what happened. Well, it turns out, I didn't know this till later, this was not instant redemption here, okay? <laughs> this did not happen. It was like, oh, oh, yeah, we straightened it out right away. It wasn't like a sitcom, all right? I didn't, you know, it was like, all right, you're a weirdo, don't touch anybody else. And that's the way I left. Okay, that, that's, how it, that's how we left it. It turned out, though, that that guy had stomach cancer. Not even kidding you. He had stomach cancer. I punched him in the gut. All right? And God somehow did a healing work in him. And the next time he went to be checked, they couldn't find any trace of cancer. He was cleared and completely healed. Now, do I recommend that? For every time you pray for somebody? Absolutely not. In fact, I, I, I've done that a few times, but not very many. And and I wouldn't recommend that, but you know what? If the Holy Spirit leads, sometimes that's what it requires. You want me to explain that? I can't explain that. I don't know. And the real point comes down to, are you willing? Are you willing to stand in the authority that Christ gives you and be used in that authority no matter what that means? And, and that's really the question, because as we come down here, and we and you see what Nehemiah has to say to these people, what you see him talking to these people about is that he, he talks about this idea of the right to worship, that they didn't have the right to worship, those Arabs that were there, those Samaritan Arabs. He's like, you don't have the right to worship here. It's not your right. And and he's like, and more than that is that like you have no authority over us. You have no interest in our gathering, our you know what we would call our church, our city. And but you're strangers to what we're doing, and without understanding. And that's what he was telling them. So you got no right to this. And he was clear because they were trying to tell him what to do. They were trying to tell him what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And and he didn't. And I want you to be clear on this too. He was the cupbearer to the king, the most powerful king on the face of the earth. And it was the most powerful king on the face of the earth that gave him the money and gave him the papers of authority and sent him back to Jerusalem to do exactly what he was doing. But if you read this, he doesn't refer to that guy when he's talking to these people. He refers to God and even higher authority than the man who sent him. And I think that's really interesting. It kind of tells you where Nehemiah is coming from. Because he could have just referred to immediately, said, well, the king of Babylon is the one that sent me. If you've got an argument, why don't you go argue with him? 
Nobody's going to argue with him. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. He looked to where his real authority, where he considered his real authority came from, and that was from God. He recognized that. Because I, I'll tell you, that, and, and I've, I've run into this in my life over time, that you know, there's been times where people that I've worked for really liked me, and there's been times where people I worked for really didn't like me. There's been times where people that I worked for, I could do nothing wrong, and they would open up every door I needed open for me. And there are other times people opposed me that were in charge of what I was doing. And sometimes it would be both of those things within the same frame of time that I was at the same job. In other words, I might have showed up to that job, the guy hated me. But then a new guy came in, he loved me. But I kept there, and then another guy came in who hated me. All right, so where is my authority, or, or what would I choose to be my authority? One of those guys? Because he might love me, but he might hate me. The same guy could love me one day, hate me the next. I don't know. People are kind of weird, and they're fickle. But am I really there because God opened that door, and he's empowered me to be there? Yeah. I want, I'm going to see it that way, and I'm going to understand it that way, and I'm going to move that way, and I'm going to move in authority that way. That's how it goes. And so if I choose to do that, I have a more solid base of operation, a more solid base to speak from, a more solid base to be used from in whatever ministry and whatever thing that God has me to do. So Nehemiah, you notice what he's doing here. What he's saying is, he's like, they're, they're arguing with him. He's like, yeah, yeah, you guys have no right. But he speaks, though, in authority based on his relationship with God not the king of Babylon. And everybody saw the king of Babylon. He's like a giant, man. That guy was... He, power, authority, armies, weapons, money, all those things. He had all those things. He could have called on all of those things, but he called on God because he considered him greater. See, that's a perspective shift for most of us. That we change our perspective from the earthly and what we're seeing in people and thinking, well, if I can earn their favor, then everything will work out great. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. And if you earn their favor, you're going to come into a point where there's another guy waiting around somewhere watching that that's going to hate you because of it. And maybe they'll be the next in charge. Who knows? But our authority needs to come from God. Nehemiah understood that. I understood that. It says, and so he told these people, he, I mean, just straight up, this is the truth. You have no authority here. You have no interest in us. You have no interest in our city. You're strangers. You're without understanding. And I want you to understand, too, he had no interest. Nehemiah had no interest in whatever their mongrel form of worship was. Because it was mongrel. And it remained mongrel even to the day of Jesus with the Samaritans. Because they became a mixture of people. There were people that had at one time been Jewish, but at a later time when the Arabs mixed in, there was a whole nother kind of mixture into what they believed. One of the things we've learned traveling around the world is that, and this is no offense to anybody who happens to be Roman Catholic, but the Roman Catholic philosophy of, of, of doing missions is this, 
We're going to do our thing. We're going to establish our church. We're going to establish the Mass. We're going to establish what we do. And as long as you participate in what we do, the other stuff that you do, none of our business. And that's how they establish themselves around the world. So, what happens is, let me, for example, the Philippines. Okay, the Philippines is a good example of that. Where you have massive Roman Catholic churches, you have a massive Roman Catholic presence, and there's all of the trappings of Roman Catholicism, plus a good dose of good old-fashioned Filipino animism mixed together. And what you get from that is this really weird form of Roman Catholicism where people have themselves nailed to crosses on Good Friday every year. People will walk, will, will crawl on their knees across cobblestones for a mile in order to touch not a statue relic, but a brass pad with a wire going to the statue to be blessed by it. See, that's kind of weird. And that I could go on and on and on about that. Or you go to a Roman Catholic church in West Africa. Good dose of Roman Catholicism. Good dose of animal sacrifice. And so you walk into the courtyard of the church outside, and you have a nice church with all of the Mary trappings and everything for the Roman Catholicism. But then over on the other side of the courtyard, there's a pagan fetish where people sacrifice chickens at it as part of their ground. You see, that's mongrel worship. Can you follow that? And I'm not sure they're the only people that do that. They're, just, they're the more obvious ones that do that that we've been able to see wherever we go. Uh, whether and, and it takes different forms. Whether it could be South America, you know, we we uh, traveled through Brazil, done crusades through Brazil, and you see some of the same things. It could be Central America that we've seen some of the same things. It could be our neighbor to the south, Mexico, and you look at some of the ways that that you see the form of whatever it is, whatever religion it is, but I'm picking on Roman Catholicism, so I'll stick with that so as not to offend the other half of the world. But um, but you see it. and but, but, you know, you think about Roman Catholics that live in Syracuse. There's a lot about what you see in Roman Catholicism in other parts of the world that they wouldn't even recognize. Like, why are people doing that? Why is that a part of, we never do that. I've never seen that before. And it is. It's a mongrel form of worship. And so I, I picked on them, but, I mean, the same is kind of true in just about everybody that does missions. They've just been doing it longer and have more money to back it, and they're just bigger. And so it, it's more obvious when you see it. And to have a philosophy like that is producing kind of mongrel forms of what's not really a mongrel form of worship. 
But that's what you see. And so what Nehemiah was saying here is that we have no interest in this. We have no interest in your mongrel worship. I mean, I know the Arabs have mixed with the Jews here, and you've kind of put your whatever your faith is or whatever it is together, and and this is what we've got now, but we have no interest in that. And so he, he just proclaimed that right off the bat. And, of course, I'm sure they were offended by that, right? But he didn't care about them being offended. He, he was like, I, I don't want anything to do. I detest your mongrel worship. I detest your faith practice. And and you think about it. It's like, and, he, and the question comes up is like, well, who's approved that? Who approves what you're doing? Is that approved by the state? Is that approved by... Karen? I mean, who approves that? I don't know. I'm not sure. And, and and so the church has to be careful. I believe the church has to be careful not to allow that that kind of bastardization of, of, of worship, that kind of bastardization of faith to meet whatever it is that people think we're supposed to meet. Yeah. As we look at what God established and what God continues to establish, we have a higher call. There's something higher to what we believe and what we're doing, and Nehemiah understood that. He was at the highest level of political authority. In fact, he represented the king where he stood that day. That was the highest level of political authority in Jerusalem on the day that he was speaking to these people. He was it. There was none higher. And he had the papers to prove it. The point is, though, he gave glory to God. And he gives us this this idea is like, well, political authority isn't the end all, is it? God authority is the end all. And that's what he stood with. And that's what he stuck with. And that's what I'm going to declare unto you. That's what I'm going to proclaim to you. And he told them this too. He says, not only do you not have the right to worship, you also don't have the authority to partake in the vision or in the provision of what God's doing here in Jerusalem. You have no authority to do that. And and he basically just tells them, he's like, I'm not here to please you. I don't desire your favor. I don't desire your help. I don't need it. And so I declare to you that you have no right and you have no authority here and that's all there is to it. Now, you can look at that and you say, well, that's pretty rude. Yeah, is that any more rude than showing up to somebody that's trying to build something and tell them they can't do it? Who was rude first? And and really what he says here isn't rude, he's just speaking the truth to them. And he's just telling them emphatically, saying, you have no right to worship, you have no authority here, you can't partake in this, in this vision, you can't partake in this provision, and that's all there is to it. And he had a boldness to not be intimidated by scoffers and people who are threatening him. There's always scoffers. Always. Scoffers, they're like a plague. 
Because it's easy to scoff. It's easy to look at something and say, well, that'll never work. Yeah. Yeah, I understand why you're saying that. It does seem unlikely, but I believe it's going to work. That's why I'm going to do it. If I stopped every time somebody told me, that's never going to work, I'd never do anything. Just about. That'll never happen. Well, you don't know that. And sometimes I let things go too long because somebody will say, this is what I think I want to do. I'm like, okay. And everybody around me is like, that's never going to work. I'm like, let's just give it a shot and see what happens. And I'll let stuff go a really long time because it's like, I don't know if it's going to work or if it's going to work. I don't have any idea. You get a word from God. You get God telling you to do something, whether it looks likely or unlikely, doesn't matter. It is what it is. And you're going to get your shot. You wonder, it's like, well, how do you decide who gets to do stuff? I'm like, well, they tell me God told them to do it. All right. That's all it requires? Pretty much. Pretty much. I'll back you on that one. Let's see what happens. I've seen some awesome things happen. All right? Because we just went and did it. All right? That's what God said. We're going to do it. That was it. And so it happened. And, and I've seen great things take place like that. Well, how do you know? I don't know. God said. If he said it to me, I know it. If he says it to somebody else, I just believe him. If they're lying to me, we'll figure it out eventually. Or if they're deceived, I'll figure it out eventually. Or if they didn't really hear from God, we'll know pretty soon. So... So I don't know what the downside to that is. You might be opening up a door for the miraculous to take place right in front of your face. It's better than closing a door in Jesus' face. You follow me? Which is worse? I'm not going to close the door in Jesus' face. So let's say we go for it and it doesn't turn out to be the case. All right, what do we waste? Some time? A little bit of resources? Okay, that's fine. I can live with that. I'd rather waste some time and some resources than shut the door in Jesus' face. Because the upside of it is I've seen the miraculous, the powerful, the unbelievable happen right in front of me. I'll take that. And I will take that chance every time. He wasn't intimidated, Nehemiah. He had no reason to be. He had no reason to be. He knew he was there because God sent him there. And these scoffers, that was never going to work. Whatever. It's going to work. They're trying to intimidate him, threaten him, whatever. He wasn't intimidated. He wasn't threatened. I mean, you think about like what happened with them. He had them rebuilding the walls. And in order to accommodate these scoffers and these people that said they're going to come attack him, he had them rebuilding the wall. They, they had a sword strapped to them themselves. Everybody, every worker had a sword on them. Why? Because if the, the trumpet sounded, they were getting attacked in one of the openings in the wall. Everybody would run to that opening and they'd defend the city. So he did give an account. He said, all right, well, we'll just take these precautions. And he's like, well, we'll do it this way then. We'll work, and as we're working, we'll stay armed, and if something happens, we'll blow the trumpet, we'll get there, and we'll take care of business. And that's all there was to it. He knew he was supposed to be there. He didn't live in fear. 
He didn't live intimidated. He rose up in boldness and authority. You see, he understood something that that God prospers what he what he commands. And so by that it's, it just means it's gonna work. You know, when I use the word prosper, people think, Oh, people are gonna throw money at me. No, that's not what prosper that's not the kind of prosper I'm talking about. He prospers what he commands. In other words, if he commands something and we're obedient to it and we get out and we're diligent to it, he prospers that thing. In other words, it works. It works. And so Nehemiah knew he'd been called. Nehemiah knew what God had called him to, and he knew that he was going to prosper. It was going to work. And so he had no care about what the scoffers were saying. None. Now, I want you to see that as, as the beginnings of a formula. You ready? And, and it's not a hard and fast formula. Oh, it's just going to work every time. I don't know if it's going to work every time, but this is a formula that he used. And the formula is this. He understood. He had faith. Right? Follow me. Faith. That whatever God commands, he prospers. Alright, so that makes sense. And I want you to let that make sense in your heart. It'll work. Whatever God commands is going to work. Second part of that, he didn't listen to what people told him. He had no care for it. Didn't care. He didn't care. So, he believed God spoke this thing. It's going to happen. It's going to work. He didn't listen to the people that were scoffing at him. Therefore, and this is the end of the formula, arise and build. You ever wonder how things get built in the kingdom? That's how things get built. You get a word from God, you have faith, he's going to prosper that thing, it's going to work, and then you got to tune out the scoffers and the people trying to intimidate you out of it. At that point, you arise and build. That's how things get built in the kingdom. I know of no other way. None. And so that becomes something that we need to have in our heart, in our soul, something in our mind. That we hear from God. Alright. Well, he's, that's going to work. And so then you think about all the voices in our lives. Some are well-meaning, too. Don't get me wrong. There's well-meaning voices in our lives that are still going to be detrimental to the work of the kingdom. There are. When I, when I first became a Christian, my father, who should have been super happy that I came to know Jesus, and eventually he was. But when I first came to know Jesus, now, mind you, I'm a guy, I'm partying, I'm breaking into the house because he locked me out, didn't give me a key. I'm that guy, you know, like just getting in fights. I'm that guy, you bail out of jail sometimes. I'm that guy. I come home from a break and I'm reading the Bible and I'm on the couch the whole break. Does that sound like an improvement? Not to him. And, and he, and don't get me wrong, he loved me, and, and, and I know that, and he provided for me, he took care of me, even when nobody else was there to take care of me, my dad was always there, alright? But when I came home, all Jesus freaked out like that, he, he, he pretty much told me I was out of my mind. 
and he scoffed at it, and he made fun of it. Said, well, I guess we'll see how long this lasts. Because he knew me. But it did last. And, and even though he's well-meaning, even though he loved me, you know, and follow me on this, see, that was still scoffing and disheartening, or it could have been. But I had to tune that out. Because it was time to arise and build. I knew what God had said. I know, and I knew somewhere in my heart, and I didn't have the verse to back it up, but I knew that whatever He tells me to do is going to work. And right from the start, it was like, oh, you're a new Christian. Yep, we're going to start a campus ministry on this campus where I'm going to school right now. We're going to start that campus ministry, and it's going to be awesome. And you, you can't even tell you how many voices, like, well, you're too young, you can't do that. You haven't been a Christian long enough, you can't do that. The university's going to oppose you at every every turn. They did. They did. You can't find a church, you're not going to be able to find a church that's going to help you do it. Nobody wants to help with that. They don't have the resources for it. I found a church, though. You see, every turn, it was scoff. Every turn, it was against what I was doing, intimidating, threatening, whatever it would be. And yet, there had to be a moment where I tuned that out, believed what God said, knew He was gonna, it was gonna work, and arose and I built something. And that's what we did. Me and two other guys, we built something that worked. That's what God said. Because at the same time He was speaking to me, He was speaking to two other guys independently and telling them the same stuff. And somehow we all found each other. And we pooled our resources, probably had one good brain between the three of us, and did it. Yeah. Because all three of us were a little bit messed up. All of us. But that's how things are built in the kingdom. I can turn me to Hebrews 13. I'm going to finish here. Hebrews 13, and verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Alright, thank you. And this is a rude verse. All right, and you need to understand what's being said there. That's a rude verse. Because I'll tell you what it says. I'll let you know. They, if you read what happens before it and you read what happens after it, you're going to see what the point of the book of Hebrews is. And what's happening there is that there's a lot of pointless teaching out there. And he was describing pointless teaching, the writer of Hebrews was describing pointless teaching as teaching that either made no sense or had already been passed by. Because there were arguments going on in the early church, and the arguments in the early church revolved around whether or not people needed to become Jewish before they became Christians. And they were arguing about it. It was like, well, we were all Jewish when we became followers of Christ, so everyone must have to become Jewish before they can follow after Jesus. That was the point. 
And so the book of Hebrews is written to answer some of those questions and to really address some of those questions head on because it was written to a people that were confused about that. They were confused as to what it really meant to be a Christian and what really was taken care of through the sacrifice of Jesus and what had happened through that sacrifice of Jesus, through the cross, through the resurrection of Jesus, all those things. And it really began to address some of those issues. And so you get down to this verse. And say, well, basically what's being said is that you have no need for this pointless teaching and these pointless arguments are going on because you have been given something real. You've been given sustenance. Because we have an altar. Who? We do. Christians have an altar that is superior and we are all priests. That's what it says. Now, what the rude part is, is to the exclusion of everyone else. Specifically, the Jewish nation. That's what this verse says. And Christians don't like that. Christians don't like that. They don't like that. They don't like that idea. Because, and you read every commentary on the face of the earth, you read anything you want to read, and what they say is, oh, well, you know, the Jews will be saved. Not unless they know Jesus, they won't. Okay, and you can say that they will, and you can proclaim that, and that's okay. It's just not popular what I'm saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm here to say that, you know, those early apostles in the early church, they would have not given their whole lives reaching out to the Jewish nation to win them to Christ, if they believed, even for a second, follow me on this, that those people were going to be saved anyway. Would they? Would you give your life to accomplish something that, that you believe is going to happen anyway, whether you do or you don't? Isn't that pointless? It's pointless. But see, these guys, men, women, whoever they were in that early church, they literally laid down their lives. Every one of them, all right, 11 out of 12, I'll say, gave their life reaching the Jewish nation for Jesus. Because they believed in their heart of hearts if they didn't preach Jesus to those people, if those people didn't receive Jesus into their lives, they would never be saved. You got it? You follow me? Okay. This is important because we've modernized this idea. We forget what actually happened. We forget our history thinking, oh, well, we don't want to exclude them or we don't want to cause anybody to not like them or we don't, what, that, that's not really my point tonight. You don't need to lie about something in order to fix something else. The truth is good enough. And if people's hearts are darkened or if people need to deal with certain things in their hearts, well, address that. If people have hatred in their hearts or they have hatred in their lives, address that. But you don't need to make something up in order to address what really needs to be addressed on the heart level. We don't need a doctrine. We just need the truth. And so the words of Nehemiah 
as he spoke to those Samaritans, he just told them, he said, flat out, you don't have the right. Well, look at what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's like, don't, don't waste your time on foolishness. Do not waste your time on, on listening to these pointless arguments and this pointless teaching. Because you have been given an altar. What do you do at the altar? You worship there. What do you do at the altar? That, that's where you meet with God. And you have been given this altar that these people were talking about. Who? Anybody else. can even? They can't even come up to the altar. They can't even approach it. And every single one of you is a priest. Yeah. Christ, Christ, is a means of reconciliation. He's our means of reconciliation. He's also our sustenance. He's all those things. And we have to see Him that way. Because I'll tell you, the serpent's seed continues to oppose the cause of Christ. Because that seed knows no age, it knows no nation. And so it falls on us to allow no business, no pleasure, no support of A or B to so engage our attention that the kingdom of God means nothing to us. We have to keep things in perspective. You think about the sacrifice? The Bible talks about sacrifice. We bring the sacrifice of praise. We bring the sacrifice of worship. We bring the sacrifice before Jesus. That's the sacrifice we bring as the priest. And we have to keep our mind, our heart, our spirit focused on what actually matters. And it's not the most urgent thing all the time. It's not the loudest thing all the time. It's not the most threatening thing most of the time. It's simply Jesus. And we have to maintain somehow, some way, a focus so that we can continue to engage the kingdom the way he desires us to. When Nehemiah gave his speech to the Samaritans that showed up trying to shut them down, he was speaking to them, but he was also speaking to the people that were listening. He was encouraging them. He was exhorting them. And you know what happened after he was done with his speech? They all got up and they went to work. They went to work. And so I just want to encourage you toward that. Exhort you toward that. You need to go to work. I know you get tired. I get tired. And so we take our breaks. But it's time to get back to work. And we get distracted sometimes. That's alright. Just shake your head like a cartoon character. Get it straightened out. And get back to work. You know what I mean. Make that noise. Get back to work. Can I ask you to pray with me? Father, thanks for uh, 
just encouraging us. And I thank you for that encouragement tonight. And I thank you that we serve the Lord God of the universe. There's no higher authority. There's no one with more important voice than you. There's no one that has anything more important for us to do than you. There's no higher appeal. There's no higher authority. You're it. And I thank you that as you speak to us and you give us direction, that which your word is, I thank you, Lord, that you prosper that thing. It's going to work. And so I pray that we would have enough, enough of an understanding and they would walk in enough of an authority in our lives to shut out and shut down the scoffers and those that want to threaten us. For God, I would just ask simply that we be a people who hear what you say and we get about it. We just get about it. That we arise and build. God, I thank you that you still have more for us to do. I thank you that there's a big world out there that's still in need. I thank you that we live in a neighborhood that is still in need. We live in a city that is still in need. A state that is still in need. I pray, Father, that as your vision is poured out, we find ourselves arising and building what you show us to do. So I pray a new courage over us. I pray a boldness, a renewed boldness over us. And I pray, God, that we'd walk in the authority that only you can give us. Give you thanks tonight. Use us, Lord. Build your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.